So this morning we're going to read uh, from Genesis in chapter 1 from verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there were evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thank you, Dave. It's lovely to be with you this morning, especially in your new building. Um, Andrew gave me a conducted tour, and I was very impressed. The only thing is, you seem a bit further away than the last time I was here. And uh, it's the usual practice. Any church I go to, it's, uh, nobody wants to sit at the front in the spray area, as I call it, for the preachers. Um, but it is lovely to be with you. And uh, as Dave said, our association with this place goes way back. Um, I I was trying to work out how many years, and I think probably the first time I spoke here on a Sunday morning family service would be about 40 years ago. I know looking at me, you think, how could that possibly be? Um, But I think it must be getting on for that long ago. So it's just great to see how um, you're going on. Um, we had a similar situation in our own church, and my advice would be don't make change for change's sake, but don't be afraid to make change. Um, and sometimes change is difficult, um, but I do trust the Lord will bless you, um, and that indeed this will be a new chapter for you here in Fernie Hill. A few years ago, I came out of church on a Sunday morning. It was during the Edinburgh Festival. And um, I was making my way to my car down the high street. The place was full of tourists. And uh, a gentleman came up to me from his accent. He was evidently American. And he sort of pushed his way through the crowds and said, Would you mind if I shoot your hand? And just as we were about to do that, he drew his hand back and said, Oh, no, you're not him. So I then said, he became a little flustered, and and I said, who do you think I was? And he seemed a bit reluctant to tell me, and he said, I thought you were John Mahoney. So I looked at him and said, who's John Mahoney? And he said, well, he plays the father in Frasier. So I went home. I was first a little alarmed to read that he was 77. And that he died a few months earlier. (laughs) Now that was a case of mistaken identity. And could I suggest that sometimes we do that with God. 
we think we recognize him and we think we know him, but actually it's possible to maybe not see him for some or see somebody else, but actually to create God as we've been thinking about earlier this morning in our image. So how do we know what God is like? And essentially, I think there are two ways. Um, I am not an artist, but um, it's going back about 30 years ago now. Um, we were on holiday in Keswick. It wasn't at the time of the convention. And we had two young children. We were in a bed and breakfast, and the landlady obviously didn't like children. And uh, she didn't want them running about the place, and we had to put them to bed early. And we ended up sort of locked in a bedroom Um, trying to get them off to sleep and to stay quiet. And in order to um, entertain myself, there was nothing to do, so I picked up a bit of paper and drew my sleeping children. In fact, the drawings are still somewhere on my study wall. Now, if you were to look at those pictures, they would tell you a little bit about me. Uh, They would tell you that I'm not much of an artist for a start. But it's very, very limited. That the, the information you get from those two pictures is extremely limited if you want to know me. And in a sense, God has created, but to know him, we know something about him from his creation, but it's very limited. We don't really know the person. If you want to get to know me, the best way to do it would be to come to my house, maybe have a meal together, and there needs to be communication. If I could put it this way, there needs to be a revelation, would be another way of putting it. I would need to, be, I would need to reveal myself to you, and the only way I can do that is to speak to you. Now let's think about that a moment for a moment and use that analogy and apply it to God. God has given us a tremendous revelation in his creation. But he has revealed himself, I would suggest to you, in his word. That's why we call the Bible the word of God. It is where God speaks. It's where God reveals himself. And we put creation And that, what we call general and special revelation together. And it's from there and there only that we can understand what God is like. Now, amazingly, and we go to a few verses this morning, which frankly we could take weeks to deal with properly. But I just want to hone in on really a couple of the verses. And it's ones that... I think Alistair has directed that we should think about rightly so. And in Genesis 1.26, we read this, And God said, Let us make man in our image. Now, of course, that begs the question, what does that mean? Does that mean God has a head and hands and eyes and a mouth? Now, sometimes he is described in that way. But God is not physical in that sense, we read elsewhere that God is a spirit, whatever that means. But what does it mean when it says, let, God said, let us make man in our image? 
And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that in essence, it means two things. It means that we have personality and it means that we have relationship. And in both these things, there is great value. I remember it was a few years ago in my professional life, I was acting for a family. They had a daughter who was quadriplegic, deaf, blind, and they reckoned that she had a mental age of a baby of about six months. And the issue in the case was this. Should she have access to an education which gave on-body signing? And this system of signing and communication means you touch the person in a certain way and they then are able to signal back whether they're hungry, thirsty or whatever. And that was the issue, was to put her in a very expensive placement here in our city. And I remember the mother in her evidence describing what life was like for them. And she spoke about how every two hours she had to get up and turn her child in the night. How she was fed, how she was looked after, how she was changed. By this stage, she was about 10 years of age. And at the end of her evidence, she said something that I will never forget. She said, looking after my daughter is the greatest pleasure of my life. And it was a very, very moving testimony. And what interested me was the room, there was a committee there to make the decision, a tribunal. There were other representatives there. But nobody said to her, what a waste. There was nothing but admiration. And I wondered, why is that? And could I suggest it's because deep down inside of us all, there is a notion, there is an understanding of the value of human life, even that life, that we're made in God's image. It's that that gives us value. And we could have a whole talk that's maybe needed these days about disability and how the image of God is still retained in the disabled. It's interesting in James because some say, well, of course, after the fall, we've lost that image, we've lost that mark, we've lost that stamp. But James writes this, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. And what gives as value, what gives as value as human beings is that God has put his imprimatur on us all. His stamp is there. But what I want to just share in the time that remains, what is that stamp? What is it that gives us that value? And I want to suggest to you, as I've said, two things, personality that leads to relationship. Now, let's think just for a moment about our text. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Now, there's a couple of things. Remember, supposing you were just reading this book for the very first time and you read it logically and you start at the beginning and you don't know anything about the story and you get to this point. Then God said, let us make man in our own image. That's somewhat striking. The other thing is, if you were reading in the original language, which is Hebrew, you would immediately note 
that the word for God is Elohim, which is a plural noun. In Hebrew, you add I am to the end of a singular noun, and it makes it plural. So the first thing that we read about here is that God is a plurality. Later on in the text, after man falls, it says, And God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And again, right through Genesis, go and check it out for yourself with a good concordance. Elohim, Elohim, Elohim. There is a plurality in the Godhead. Now, in the Old Testament, it somewhat concealed this truth. But it is there, and we start to see the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. In fact, the first member of the Trinity that's mentioned in the Bible actually is the Holy Spirit. Right at the beginning of Genesis, it says that he hovered over the waters. At the end of the Old Testament, Malachi writes, Have we not one Father? Did not one God create us? So there is an emerging picture of the Father, and in the Son... As well, we read in Psalm 2, he said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. And that trinity there is implicit in the Old Testament, but it becomes very explicit in the New. Remember when Jesus is baptized and we read in Matthew, at that moment heaven was opened And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, lightning on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. And then you read the epistles, the letters of Paul. In Ephesians 1, he talks about how the Father has chosen us in Christ, how we're redeemed by the Son, how the Spirit seals us. And then again and again and again, what was implicit in the Old Testament becomes explicit in the New, that God is a plurality, that in fact he is three in one. Now, if you want me to explain that this morning, I'm afraid you're going to be sorely disappointed. But it strikes me that if we were going to construct a God out of our imagination, how on earth would we construct a God like this? One who is three persons, but one. It's a huge, huge mystery. There is no God like him. There is no comparison. Now, I want us to think about for a moment, what are the implications of this for us? In 1 John 4, 7, we read this, God is love. Now, interestingly, he doesn't say God is loving. He said God is love. It's an attribute of God. Now, an attribute is something, it's an aspect of God's character that exists independently of everything except himself now you need to just bear with me and follow this argument through love needs an object and there is evidently love because john declares that god is love there is love within the trinity the three persons Now, our Muslim friends cannot say that Allah is love because Allah is one. 
I remember a few years ago speaking to a Muslim, lovely gentleman, and we talked about what would happen at his death. In fact, a friend had just died. And he said, I don't know. I just hope that Allah will be merciful. For them, Allah is capricious in the sense they do not know how he is going to react. Because Allah is one, but the God of the Bible is three persons, and therefore love can exist and be expressed between three persons. Our creator is love. It says he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He comes after us. He pursues us. He woos us, but he never forces us because he is love. And that's an important aspect of God's character. So what's the implication for that? Let us, let that plurality make us in our image. Well, listen to what else John says. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And this is how God showed his love towards us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He goes on, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Now, love is made complete when it receives a loving response. And John writes, we know that we live in him because he has given us his spirit. Now, what's the implication of that? God is love, and therefore, so should we. It's part of the image bearing. And John writes, we love because he loves. And he says that completes the love of God. It's an amazing statement. We are made in his image. We have personality in the same way as he does. And the starting point for that is if we're made in his image, then we should also love as he loves. Now, there's a second implication that goes with this, and that is holiness. In Isaiah 6, 3, it says, Holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. He is a holy, unique, triune, trinity God. But look what Peter writes. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. And I think what he's saying there is ignorance of God's holiness. You did not understand what he's like. But just as he who called you is so holy, so be holy in all you do, for it's written, be holy because I am holy. Now, what I want to suggest to you this morning is that love and holiness go together. You can't have one without the other. Now, our culture says love is love. In fact, repeatedly, I'm seeing through our TV in all sorts of different circumstances and expressions, you can love anyone you like. You can have an open marriage. You can do this. You can, there are no limitations on love. Let me tell you, that is nonsense. Love always creates 
some kind of limitation. It's the way love works. And God says, you cannot truly love me unless you are holy. Now let me see how John puts this again in one of his epistles. And he, 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 he states it much, much more specifically. How love has, it forces boundaries. Love has to have boundaries. Listen to this. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of the eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. And you see, what John seems to be saying, following up on Peter, is, listen, it's part of this image bearing we're going to love, but love always means holiness. These are the implications of a triune holy God. Love of the world, says John, means death. Now, there's another passage that just in closing, I want to leave with you. And at first sight, it doesn't seem to have much to do with what we're thinking about. But Paul writes this in Corinthians, and it's a long passage, but let me just read it to you. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make, my, make it a slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself might not be disqualified of the prize. Now, Paul says here he is not talking about his salvation, because that is holy by faith in Christ. But he says here, there is something that I need to work for. It's not coming automatically. Now, one of the problems in the Bibles is that, you know, we put in chapters and we tend to stop reading there. But particularly Paul, who's a lawyer, gives you a big long argument and you've got to keep reading it and following it through. So he says, listen, I don't want to lose out in the prize and I'm bringing about a certain amount of discipline to my life so I achieve it. And then he writes this, for I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and they, were all, they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate and drank the same spiritual fruit and drink and they drank from the same spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with them and their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now he's just been talking about reaching for the prize and then he says, now listen, think about this. Remember our forefathers. And he goes back to the wilderness. And he said, listen, they all had the same blessings. They all had the manna. They all had the water from the rock. They all followed the cloud. They all followed the fiery pillar. They all had the tabernacle. They all had those blessings. And you know what? Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. And then he says this. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality. We should not test the Lord. We should not grumble. Now he's writing to believers. 
He's saying, I don't want you to miss the prize. And then he says this, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the age has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. And then he finishes off in verse 14. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Now, the question then is what prize is Paul talking about that might be lost? And in Philippians 2, he writes this. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And I press on to take hold of that which Christ took hold of me. I press on, he says, to win the prize. And there Paul is saying, I want to know him. And could I suggest to you the prize that Paul is talking about that comes through love and holiness is intimacy. You know, we kind of think, I want to get to heaven. And actually, the guy in the street thinks heaven is like lying on a beach, sitting your tequila in the sunshine, and it's all lovely. And sometimes, even for us as believers, we kind of think that. You know, it's going to be, it's go, it's going to be like a lovely holiday. Timothy Dudley Smith, in his great hymn about the Lord Jesus writes, the Savior of Calvary, costliest victory, darkness defeated, and Eden restored. See, as you're going to find as you go through your series, there's a point when God comes to Adam and it's in the cool of the day and they're coming for fellowship. They're coming for those intimate moments and they're broken. And Adam is hiding. And you see the whole plan of God, the whole thing about making us in his image is so that we can have personality and from that follows relationship. And the greatest relationship of all is our relationship with him. And what this book is about that we have in our hands is how what was lost in Eden is restored. That that fellowship, that really, it's not about lying on a beach in the sun, but it's being able again to walk with God as he intended. And I think what Paul is warning his believing friends in Corinthians about is it's possible it is possible as believers not to lose your salvation, but to lose that intimacy, to lose that fellowship, to lose that walk. And he says, whatever you do, don't do that because you've missed out on what it's all about. It's so that we can have fellowship, a relationship, intimacy with God again. You know, Leslie and I have been married now, believe it or not, for 40 years. And I would say the prize of a loving and long marriage is intimacy. Now, sometimes that has its frustrations because she seems to know what I'm about to say and I never know what she's going to say. But some of us who have been married for a long time know what I mean. 
And we're made for that. God has made us for relationships and ultimately a relationship for himself. When we were young, we used to sing a song and it went like this. Ho, 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 Hosanna. Ha, ha, hallelujah. He, 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 he saves me and I've got the joy of the Lord. Now, there are some old songs that I'd like to bring back. That is not one of them. What, think about this. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Could I suggest that actually... The joy of the Lord is the joy of that intimacy. It's that that carries us through. And Leslie and I have had our moments when we've shed our tears and had our burdens and had the black clouds following us. And what carries you through, in a sense, is the joy of that intimacy, of that trust. And so it is with God, the joy of the Lord is our strength. You know, I think it's been rightly said that two of the most important books in the Bible are the first two and the last two, and they're probably two of the least studied. But one day we'll get to meet Adam, and I'm going to look him up. And there's a few things I'd like to say to Adam, to be honest. But I'm going to ask him this, Adam, is it better now or was it better then? And I think he would say this when, in the words of that hymn we've already quoted. So with the ransom we praise him eternally. Christ in his majesty. Jesus is Lord. And I think Adam will say, Eric, it's better now. What a prospect we have to look forward to. But don't miss out on that intimacy. We are made in his image we have personhood and we have the capability of relationship and the greatest relationship of all is an intimate relationship with our lord which takes love and holiness let me pray for you before i hand back father we thank you for this wonderful wonderful creation Indeed, Lord, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And yet, Lord, at the heart of it, we are made for you. We're designed so that we might know you intimately. And Lord, there are so many things that get in the way of that. Some of us, Lord, may have never taken that first step of just believing that Jesus is who he said he was, that we might be born into that family and that relationship commence. Lord, if we're there this morning, give us the strength and the faith and call us and bring us, woo us to yourself. But Lord, most of us have known you for many, many years. And Lord, we confess that we maybe don't know you as well as we ought. And Lord, in these moments, and as your word stirs our hearts, we ask, Lord, that indeed, as we respond to your love, as we understand what you are like, and what you want and desire in terms of our love and devotion and that intimate relationship. Lord, help us to do whatever that takes in terms of love and holiness. And we ask these things in and through and for 
the Lord Jesus, to him we give all the glory and honor. Amen.